Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. The gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is to drugs. end the drug menace and to eliminate this dark, evil enemy It is necessary within. to wage a new all-out offensive. But if we don't get tough on the drug dealers, and that toughness includes the death penalty. Welcome. I'm Ben Boyce, and this is The Dr. Junkie Show. And today's episode is about one of the first drug wars that we know about, often called the Opium Wars, although they might better be called the Capitalism Wars, or maybe the Empire Wars. This episode's also about the recipe for drug wars, which has remained pretty stable since it was engineered more than 200 years ago. In the United States, and in most of the world for that matter, we generally think of the war on drugs as a movement without an end or a beginning. And that's because of our perspective. For as long as most of us today have been breathing, the war on drugs has just been a taken-for-granted thing. And because of that, we don't so much think about when it will end, or when it started, or why it started, so much as we wonder if it could just be fought a little bit better, like with less bloodshed, or maybe cheaper. We seldom wonder why it began at all, because we've been told that drugs are bad for so long that we just feel like that's right, and that since drugs are bad, of course there have always been presumably good people fighting against them. But that's not true, not by a long shot. When we do force ourselves to think about the beginnings of the war on drugs, we usually go back to the 1980s and Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. Or maybe we go back a little bit further, say, to the 70s and Richard Nixon, or even to the 60s and 50s in the conflation of communism and drug use, fear-mongering at its best. And if you've been listening to me and to other drug war historians, you might even drag that beginning of the war on drugs back to the late 1800s. To some degree, that's true. What we think of as the war on drugs did start around 1900. But the war against drugs is much older than that, and it didn't even start here in the West. It actually started in the East. Humans have been farming and harvesting poppies for at least 6,000 years, since as early as 3400 BC in Mesopotamia. And for as long as we've been harvesting poppies, we've been doing two things, using them to get high as medicine and replanting the strongest, biggest, hardiest plants every year, driving evolution to make poppies more potent. They were likely some of the first plants that were traded for, and it's not hard to imagine why. They were good for, well, everything. The mail-order heroin ads at least got that much right. So let's start in 1600, well before the first opium wars. And let's start with the East India Company. It was founded in 1600 and immediately granted a monopoly by England on all international trade east of Africa and west of South America. Anyone else caught trading with England in goods purchased from that area and who didn't have a license from that company 
They could have their cargo seized and split evenly between the company and the government of England. It didn't take long for the East India Company to become the Amazon of their day. They sold everything, and because of the government's deal to make them the only allowed shipping company, they became the de facto English supplier of almost everything. They were around for a long time before the Opium Wars, and they were making loads of cash. Plus, they were in bed with the English government from the start. Now, since you couldn't very well call on your country to defend you when you're at open seas if someone attacks, and since whatever paperwork you might be carrying from the queen or from the king to tell would-be attackers that you've been granted a monopoly, it didn't mean anything to pirates or to others who might steal your cargo, for all those reasons, the East India Company financed its own security, and eventually its own army. Although they were empowered by the queen from the start, to wage war whenever necessary. And of course, armies cost a lot of money. So that came from England as well, who loaned the East India Company money over and over to fund their conquests. So they used that money to defend and to set up new offices and distribution networks in different countries, mainly in India, hence the name East India Company. That in itself actually warrants a little bit more explanation. The East India Company had headed down to East Asia to trade with Indonesia for spices like nutmeg and mace, and hopefully even to trade with China for things like silk and porcelain. But they weren't the only nation-backed traders who wanted to make bank from monopolizing trade routes. Portugal and the Netherlands had already locked down everything east of India, so the East India Company was forced to settle for India. But they didn't settle for very long they started making their way toward the eastern border, which India shared with China. And eventually, they made their way all the way to that border, building a trading post in a town called Calcutta in 1690. That'll be important later on, when opium comes into the story. But the East India Company wasn't trading in opium, at least not at first. They were trading in spices and rugs, fabrics and dyes. And they were making a ton of cash. But as other companies and merchants realized they could get around the monopoly and sell their cheaper goods in Europe, the profit from voyages decreased. So from the 1600s up to the early 1700s, the East India Company, funded by England, does all sorts of shady shit in the name of capitalism and empire. They basically used their private army, again funded by England, to take over around half of India making their way east and establishing trade posts and plantations along the way, often run by slave labor, which they also participated in. And the list of products they sold and shipped continued to expand. Now let's jump forward to the late 1700s, more than 150 years after the East India Company began. They've grown by leaps and bounds, and they now regularly trade with China, although not by land. Like all international merchants, they're restricted to just one port in China, Canton. And that's going to cause an entirely separate issue. So by 1780, England is in big trouble. And so is the East India Company. The Revolutionary War is over and England lost. Which means all that cash they just spent fighting the war, poof, it's gone. And all that cash that was coming from taxation on products produced in the United States colonies, 
the biggest reason for that war, it was also gone. And of course, they also lost a stable supply of goods like lumber, tobacco, wool, dyes, iron, and rice. By 1800, the inflation rate in the United Kingdom was 36%. Something had to give. Oh, and they were addicted to drugs, but not opium. The English, true to the stereotype, loved their tea. And specifically, they loved good tea, black tea that could only be purchased in China, one of the East India Company's most lucrative products at this point, since it still did most of the delivering. Its English-supported monopoly on trade didn't end until 1813, and the company stuck around until 1873. So England's in a pickle. They need a way to generate new revenue, and they need it fast. So they looked back to the East, to China, that had managed to create its own monopoly not only on black tea, but also on that silk and porcelain I mentioned earlier. The quality of those products when coming from China was so much better than everywhere else at the time that people would just pay the markups. And because of that, a non-stop barrage of ships was always sailing into that one port to make regular purchases of those commodities, which they would then transport back home and sell for a profit. But China is not the Western world, not by a long shot. China's emperor saw English transporters as a liability to cultural collectivism. These capitalist ships might slip in their unapproved goods or drugs and change cultural traditions. That's why he placed those strict limits on contact with the outside world. And of course, as emperor, I'm sure he also understood some basics about supply and demand. And the higher cost of goods leaving China, the greater the taxation and the greater the economic benefit to Chinese merchants. Who cares about the English? They weren't his problem. Or at least they weren't his problem until the late 1700s. That's because by 1757, all trade from China was limited to just that one port in Canton. And all trade, taxation, and verification of the legality of all items on ship coming into port was given to a monopoly called the Hong. This proved one of many cultural differences that wound up leading to war. As more and more ships showed up to buy more and more goods, it got harder and harder to get into port and to make exchanges. Goods would rot at sea. Crews would run out of supplies. And of course, it was annoying to sail across the ocean just to sit at anchor for weeks waiting for a dock to open up. Merchants making these trips were capitalists, they wanted to buy their goods and head back home to sell them as soon as possible. Plus, they were English, which meant they also believed in a system that allowed appeals to a higher power, all the way up to the king if someone really pissed you off. All that came into play as well as the tensions kept building. Since it was so difficult and time-consuming to get into port in China, and since China had a monopoly on the goods they were selling, since you couldn't just buy them elsewhere, Shipped products skyrocketed in value, which, in turn, caused more transport ships to head that way, hoping to make a buck on the world market, and the problem got worse. So one port was obviously not enough space to support international demand. So, as always happens with prohibition of anything, underground markets and illegal trade routes popped up. Why wait to dock in Canton if you can just meet a Chinese ship somewhere else? or maybe smuggle goods across the land border. 
So smuggling rises, illegal goods start making their way into and out of China, including a new product, which they hadn't been all that interested until recently, opium. And of course, just like with our contemporary war on drugs, illegal importation caused the emperor to clamp down, which, in turn, promoted more smuggling because prices then skyrocketed in response to demand. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of opium being traded at this point. The English weren't big fans of the drug, and the Chinese weren't allowed to buy it. It was completely illegal there. But that drug the English were hooked on, black tea, it became so popular that at one point it accounted for a full 10% of England's import taxes. And here's the problem. When merchants sailed to Canton to pick up tea, they often tried to trade for goods, food, trinkets, or even credit. But Chinese traders weren't looking for any of that. They were looking for silver, and they started to collect a lot of it. At the height of England's black tea importation, silver was flowing out of England and into China at a rate of millions of pounds every year, with hardly any coming back because Chinese citizens consumed few British-produced goods. England's trouble was getting worse, and they were going to run out of money, or drugs, or both. But they'd started to notice that that one product they offered for trade that the Chinese were interested in was picking up a slightly bigger market all the time. That opium I mentioned. So they started bringing more. And eventually, they started to just produce it nearby, in India. But since it was illegal, you couldn't trade openly in it in Canton. So in 1792, England sent an official government ambassador, George McCartney, to Beijing to meet with the emperor and to attempt to establish a British trading post. He sailed past the Hong, a big no-no, and he headed up river, past Canton, where he was confronted by Chinese navy ships. He insisted they were there to petition the emperor and to offer him gifts. Of course, the gifts they had weren't really gifts so much as trinkets and scientific instruments they were hoping to woo the emperor with in an attempt to make him change the one-port policy. But cultural differences showed up right away and fogged the communication, so the Chinese ships ferried the English ambassador upriver to present what they saw as honorary gifts to the emperor. For all the reasons I've already mentioned, they weren't very interested in our scientific tools, our clever trinkets, or our western fancy clothing, plus they didn't see the world the same way those traders did. The visit went terribly. Even before they met the emperor, they ran into cultural issues. Like, it was expected that everyone who comes before the emperor would bow. But McCartney was from what he saw as the greatest country on earth, England. He wouldn't bow to anybody. Sound familiar? But they'd come so far, so he offered an option. A ridiculous one that, again, shows how wrong he was for the job. McCartney agreed to bow to the emperor, but only as long as a Chinese official of equal rank bowed to a picture of King George every time he bowed to the emperor. Of course, the Chinese diplomats thought this was laughable, since they were from what they saw as the greatest country on earth, with the greatest leader who these English idiots had just traveled across the globe to meet. Who was this guy anyway? In the end, McCartney agreed to take a knee, but not to bow all the way down, and the meeting finally went ahead, although by this point it was obviously in trouble. 
So the English brought out these carriages, clocks, and even telescopes, expecting awe and respect. They'd hoped the emperor would see these things and be so impressed that he would not only grant them additional ports for trade, but also offer them other amenities, including a member on the imperial court, and even an island off the coast to set up a trade post of their own. Cultural differences stood between any real dialogue, and the emperor didn't budge on his port or on the current system, and he probably didn't see the stuff they'd given him as spectacles meant to wow him so much as worthless gifts meant to show him respect as China's leader. The long trip hadn't accomplished anything. So the English either had to stop doing drugs, in this case, drinking black tea, or they had to find some new way to pay for their drugs. So they took another look at opium. So back to the East India Company, which, by this point, was in massive debt to England for the help it had received funding that private military, which it then used to conquer sections of modern-day India and Afghanistan for the purpose of establishing capitalistic trade posts. England was in bed with the company, who, between paying back their debts and shipping tea and other goods from China, accounted for a large portion of the country's revenue. But the East India Company was in trouble. All that land which England had just lost to the soon-to-be United States, much of it was being used to grow the crop that the East India Company had planned to grow itself, cotton, and the Americans were using free labor via slavery which meant they could turn out a cheaper product. The East India Company was about to go bust, and that would have meant England's lot would have gone from bad to worse, because their debt would have disappeared. So the company and the country changed tactics, and they changed products. They switched from growing cotton in India to growing opium in India, and the English government fully supported them because they considered them too big to fail. Again, sound familiar? The plan was, of course, to use opium to pay for tea from China, which they could then trade to England as payment for debt, and everything would work out. Plus, they had an added bonus of fixing England's trade deficit. Great plan, right? Well, no, because remember, opium is still illegal in China. So the East India Company set up shop in their Calcutta post on the southern western edge of China. And they did business there, within earshot of China's border. If smugglers decided to purchase their opium and sneak it into China, how could they know? And so it was that by the mid-1800s, the largest corporation in the world and one of the largest governments in the world were in bed together, orchestrating illegal drug smuggling on an international level. And business was booming. Since the Indian-grown opium proved to be more potent than Chinese opium, silver actually started flowing back out of China and into the hands of English merchants, and eventually the English government. England loved the deal, but by the mid-1800s, the emperor of China was fed up. In the spring of 1839, a war on drugs ramped up inside China, and it quickly spread to the factories and storehouses outside the country even though China didn't technically have the right to invade what was then still considered part of India. But it was obvious that the East India Company, under the authority of the English government, was selling opium to smugglers who were then breaking multiple laws by bringing it into China. So China attacked. The English opium dealers across the border held out for a month and a half 
before giving up and handing over 21,000 chests of opium, something like 1,400 tons. It makes my mouth water. China burned it. So these merchants are looking at losing their livelihood, and they saw the attack as an illegal seizing of British property and an illegal attack on British sovereignty. It didn't matter to them that they'd clearly been selling it to smugglers. They demanded that England pay them back and that the crown make it right. The tinderbox is smoldering, and all it took was a small spark when a British merchant killed a Chinese man in port before escaping back to England in the summer of 1839, and England refused to return him to China to face justice. One thing led to another, and near the end of 1839, the First Opium War began. That war lasted three years, and the Chinese took the worst of it, since the war was waged on their home turf by England's superior weapons and ships. The war finally ended in late 1842, and the English put forth their demands. They took Hong Kong as an English port, they demanded five additional ports on mainland China be open to trade with the outside world, and they insisted on extra privileges not granted to any other nationality of people outside China. Like I said, the so-called opium wars were more about capitalism than they were about drugs. But opium remained illegal in China. That's one thing they wouldn't give in and change. At least not yet. The Second Opium War began much the same way. England was still reliant on opium sold in China to fund their economy, and they'd been unsuccessful in getting China to legalize the drug. When China seized a ship in 1856, which was registered to Hong Kong, a British colony since the end of the First Opium War, England took the opportunity to go to war yet again, and this time they brought their friends. So many other countries that you might actually think of this as the First World War. This conflict was even bloodier and more prolonged than the first, lasting from 1856 to 1860. And all of it was because of the fact that China wouldn't give in in legalizing drugs, allowing the West to make a ton of money off selling it to their citizens. The United States War followed the same script. When opium was added to the list of feared chemicals, it was because newspapers and politicians played on the fears of white citizens, stigmatizing opium dens, low-income housing and recreational joints where Chinese immigrants hung out and sometimes smoked opium, a practice they brought with them from China. It's a bit ironic, a lot ironic actually, that Western influences were vital to the original importation of opium smoking into China in mass during the preceding century. England smuggled it in, allowing it to ingrain itself in Chinese culture. Then the United States stigmatized Chinese people when they brought that cultural tradition with them to America. Talk about a double standard. The irony doesn't end there. White U.S. citizens were also using opium in the early 1900s. A lot of it between patent medicines, civil war scars, and the legacy of snake oil salesmen. But we were drinking it, or swallowing it in pill form. The people who orchestrated the U.S. war on drugs weren't concerned that people would get high on opium. They were concerned that Chinese immigrants would get high on opium. That's how the war on opium began in the United States. And thus began an entirely new journey down the road of chemical replacement that followed a reliable script that goes something like this. 1. 
a miracle drug is discovered, and incredible claims are made about its efficacy, its lack of addiction potential, and its ability to replace other, more dangerous drugs. 2. The drug catches on, and it's oversold and attached to promises it can't keep, causing it to go through a short romantic stage before the consequences of irresponsible, uneducated drug use catch up with us. Then 3. We flip on a dime, talk all sorts of shit about the drug, and we often even make it illegal. Then we begin stigmatizing or even locking people up for using it. And finally, 4. We head back to the pharmaceutical lab and start the whole process over, trying to recreate the same drug, albeit in a synthetic or slightly altered form, which we can then pretend to think is original, and therefore return to step 1. And that's where I'll leave it for today. Although, I plan to pick up this thread in the future and talk about pharmaceuticals versus drugs in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. Until then, love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. Mm -hmm.